The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, everyone. If you're a visitor here this morning, we are so glad you're here. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, It's a privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. I hope that in the course of this morning you hear from this text and from this sermon what we really treasure at Bethlehem. Here with all other true churches at all other times, we love the good news about Jesus that you've heard sung about, prayed about, and we're now going to preach about. A word to uh, Bethlehem South family uh, and a notice of temporarily goodbye. Uh, My family and I, you may have seen in an email a couple weeks ago, we are going on a sabbatical this summer. So God willing, a couple Uh, A week from Tuesday will be the first day of sabbatical. We're spending most of our time here in Minnesota um, and then some time traveling and with extended family in various places. So uh, pray for us. Pray for my family. And uh, yeah, as we're away, uh, that it would be refreshing. And this has been planned for a couple years now, two, two and a half years. It's our ambition still, by God's grace, to, uh, as long as he would have us here, be here um, at Bethlehem South serving you. Let me pray. Father, grant grace now as I preach. May what I prepared and what comes out of my mouth um, be helped by the power of the Spirit, and would those that hear also be helped by the same Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A few years back, I was on a long bus ride, actually on the way back from our last youth winter retreat that was uh, all three of the campuses combined. Nick Rowan preached on union with Christ. Gibbs Zapata led worship. It was a good retreat. And I, as I often do, sat near the front of the bus on that three-plus-hour bus ride, and I talked with the bus driver. And the bus driver, I came to find out, was a person who was a believer in a different religion. And as I struck up a conversation with them, Uh, I noticed that a few of you were there. I saw you here that you were there sitting near the front of the bus praying for me uh, as I was talking to them. And I found out almost right away in this course of this conversation that this individual thought of the idea of pleasing God or being in in a right place before some kind of deity as doing good. And what they explained to me was, you know, I believe that at the end of my life, when I die, that there will be scales, and those scales will be tipped, I hope, in the direction of good over evil, and so I will enter heaven because I have, uh, they didn't say the word earned, but essentially that was the idea. Today's text speaks very directly to what it is that truly pleases God and addresses the very heart of it, what that conversation with that bus driver was about. If you're visiting this morning, we've been trucking our way through Genesis over the course of many months, plot, or just seeing the plot of the land of what it is that God created in creating the world and uh, what happened when humanity fell into sin and how God was not done with his creation, but started to work a rescue plan, including through this man, one man, Abram, that he would be the one that through him, through his offspring, the nations would be blessed. 
And now we come to our text in Genesis 15. Many years have passed, and Abram's faith in God's promise, well, has waned. His family has moved across Arabia to Canaan, and time has seemingly chipped away at God's promises. So what will it be? What will it be that will bolster Abram's faith? So let's set a little bit of a context here of a timeline. So just, uh, just think for a second. What were you doing 11 years ago? Remember what you were doing 11 years ago? I was getting settled in in St. Louis Park, and uh, we were expecting our, our first child. Um, that was a long time ago. We know from Genesis 12, verse 4, that Abram was 75 when he left Haran at the word of God, because of the word of God and started moving uh, towards Canaan. And then we find out in Genesis 16 that Abram was 86 when Sarah's servant Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And then in Genesis 17, we find out that Abram was 99 years old while he was outside Sodom and Gomorrah and God gave the promise that Sarah the next year would give birth to a boy. So Abram's somewhere between 75 years old and 86 years old when this scene takes place. He was already old when he left Haran to come to Canaan. And here God has made these stunning promises to him about offspring. So geographically, that was chronologically, geographically at the end of Genesis 11 shows that Terah, Abram's father, moved his family probably about 700 miles up the Euphrates River from Ur to Haran. And then in Genesis 12, Abram went from Haran to Egypt and then back again, probably something like another 800 miles. Uh, So 1,500 miles minimum, but I suspect the GPS was not that great on the camels in those days. So probably more like 2,000 miles of travel uh, over the course of a decade. Um, This is not... uh, grab your backpack, jump on your motorcycle, and go. This is more like U-Haul without U-Haul. So when we moved from uh, Springboro, Ohio, to here on August 6, 2010, uh, we took the Iowa route to avoid uh, taking a 26-foot U-Haul through Chicago, and that was like 780 miles, and we left at like 4 in the morning, and we got in at like dinner time. With camels and walking... And dozens of people, there's no expectation of that. This is a long journey. Abram has given up much for the sake of God's promise. And then last, just a word about the text. These verses, verses 1 through 6, is about one of the promises that God gave to Abram of offspring. And then the text that Dave is going to preach next week, God willing, is about the rest of the chapter, which is about the promise of land. So, Let's dive into the text. I encourage you, there are Bibles in the, uh, in the little pockets in front of you. If you've got a Bible with you, either on a phone um, or physical Bible, please turn with me, read along with me in Genesis chapter 15. We're going to kind of look uh, pretty intently at these six verses. So first, we see the nurture of Abram's faith through promises. This is Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward should be very great. First, we see that God is reaffirming the promise of reward made back in Genesis 12. Now, 
We don't know if Abram has heard anything else from God since the end of Genesis 13. Genesis 14, we see this, this kind of figure who stands in for God in some way, Melchizedek, that Nick preached about last week. But we haven't heard like a direct word from God, and we're not sure how long it's been. But it, I think it's safe to say that probably years have passed since something's been recorded from God. Abram's trust in God's promise seems to have waned to some degree. What will God do? He says that the reward promised, God says the reward that was promised is still there. So let's just look at this with me in the text here. Fear not. You have to remember, this is the language of grace and of God. He is regularly saying to his people all the time, either through messengers or he himself, all the time through scriptures, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. It's in Genesis 21 to Hagar, and she um, thinks she's going to die, to Isaac in Genesis 26, reaffirming God's promises, and then throughout the scriptures. My personal favorite one is Revelation 1, if you know anything about me, and Jesus laying his hand on the Apostle John and saying, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. We'll preach on that text in nine months or so. Right, Dave? I hope. So, God is in the business of bringing his promises to pass, bringing his presence to be with his people. And his presence, when it comes, you see this throughout the scripture, that's intimidating. When God comes to earth, that's, that's intimidating. Mountain shake. It looks like fire. Is that what is happening here? Is Abram fearful about like, oh, suddenly like in the night, like, oh, there's a voice or, oh, he sees something? Probably... The next couple of verses shed more light on what it is that he's fearful about. Abram is concerned about God's promises going unfulfilled. Maybe you've seen it in a movie. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. You're uh, at a place where the will of a deceased person is being read. And everybody has expected that for a long time, like, this is how the will is going to play out in this particular way. And then what's expected, what's been promised isn't actually what the will says. This analogy just kind of builds in the direction of where I think Abram's heart and mind is. Abram is afraid that on that day when these promises he's expecting are coming uh, won't actually be there. He will be left with nothing after moving his family hundreds of miles, after settling in a land that's not his land. God who knows all things, knows the state of Abram's heart. And God is reassuring him that, yes, he is remembered. As it were, he's still in the will. The promises are still sure. Note also in here in verse 1, the just I am your shield. This is all over the scriptures. David, um, you know, in the Psalms, loves this phrase. There's probably some significance here in that there was just a battle in the previous chapter, and Abram was protected. Um, so, There's also probably some significance in this. If you've been tracking with us over the last three chapters or so, there's been numerous threats to the promises. There is Pharaoh in Genesis 12. Um, There's Lot, who takes better land than Abram. And there's this battle with not Cheddar Laomer, but Keter Laomer in the previous chapter in his ally Kings. So whether there's direct threats against the promises or whether Abram's looking forward and he's just saying time is chipping away at these promises. 
God is saying he's a shield, a refuge, a protection for Abram. And then last he says in this verse, your reward shall be very great. God explicitly holds out reward to Abram. This is okay, everybody. It's okay to say, I want to be rewarded by God. There's a kind of uh, aesthetic Christianity. It's like, oh, I'm not really, there's not really a self-interest here. It's really all about others or, or God. Here at Bethlehem, we believe that there is a self-interest that we have, the best self-interest, and it's found in God, that our greatest good and his greatest glory are not disconnected. It's why we talk about this thing called Christian hedonism. Our utmost joy in God brings him the most glory, the most fame. It shows that he has the most worth in our lives. So when he holds out rewards, it's not like, you know, the, oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, please, yeah. We embrace them. We embrace his rewards. We are not most happy by seeking to please ourselves. We are most happy seeking to please God, and in that, our self-interest is revealed. So what this reward was is probably meant to encompass the totality of what God had said in his promises to Abram. The promise of a place for God's people is not going to be realized, though, if there's no people, right? And that's what's going on here in the text. Abram is doubting. He's waited. Time has chipped away at his memory of God's promise, and his doubts have grown. So second, we see in verses 2 and 3 the nature of faith and doubt in Abram. Genesis 15, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household is going to be my heir. It's like uh, an analogy I thought of. It's like uh, you've invested for years and years and years in something that you you were expecting to have significant returns, and the market crashes, or it seems to. Or uh, maybe you put all of your hope in uh, the Timberwolves or the Wild. And uh, sorry, guys, but they all bombed out in the first, uh, the first round of the playoffs. He and his wife, Abram and his wife Sarah, have been protected. Yes, God has reaffirmed the promise of land at the end of chapter 13. But Abram is old. And he's getting older. How is this promise going to come true? We have to say... This is normal. This is normal for the life of faith. It is not all roses and sunshine following after Jesus. No, throughout the scriptures we see that as saints, including Abram, go through seasons of doubt and suffering and, yes, even sin, the tender mercy of our God shows up. Shows up for his people in their time of need, and it's not different today. When faith wavers, God shows up. He knows our weakness, and he cares, and he strengthens us with his own might. You probably have heard of the name, perhaps, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, a confessional German pastor, who resisted the Third Reich in Germany when much of the National Lutheran Church that formerly believed the gospel that we would say we believe in too, but they were turning and saying, like Heil Hitler as well. Uh, Bonhoeffer was one of not many that said we cannot do this and hold on to our, our Christian faith as well. 
So he was executed in a concentration camp just before Victory Europe Day. He preached these words anticipating the day that Hitler was going to have full control over Germany. He said this, No one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrection and not also been homesick for that hour to come. Waiting and looking forward joyfully. Dead is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But that is what is so marvelous, that faith can transform even death. Or consider this a quote from Susanna Spurgeon who meditated on Deuteronomy 7-8, the phrase, because the Lord loved you as a promise to Israel. She says this, We look at the promise as a shaft of sunlight that pierces through a chink in a shuttered window or a dark experience. We are to bring our fears, our forebodings, our doubts out of dusty corners and place them within the radiance of the light of the promise of his love. You will be amazed to see your fears and forebodings and doubts transformed into trust. So whether you see the full measure of God's promises come to pass, in our lifetime or not, there remains promises from God that keep on stretching into eternity, like Bonhoeffer wrote. And there's hope for today too, like Spurgeon, Susanna Spurgeon wrote. Do you see how it is in the life of Abram, the life of these saints, that doubt is not a a foreign thing? It's kind of, it appears to be somewhat normal that it's present but it's not controlling. It's present, and faith is strengthened when it turns to God away from doubt. And indeed, faith will not be strengthened without doubt coming to challenge. Or as James 1 says, that there's a test. There's a trial of our faith, and from God's perspective, it's a test. It's for the sake of strengthening our faith. So today, this morning, if you're kind of in the spot and you'd self-discern I'm more in the power of doubt or on a pathway towards doubt or just maybe you're kind of shot through with doubts in the God of promises. Let me encourage you, sometime soon, open up the book of Genesis. Just open it up. Open it up. Take some time. Take a a series of times and read through how the God of promises works out what he said he will do over generations. And take some confidence that God is still working out his promises. Even if you can't see it all in your limited perspective. Even if it's not going to be fulfilled for you in the near future, the far future, or even in your lifetime, God's promises are sure. So, the reassurance of God's promises are essential for the life of faith. When circumstances arise that test our faith, we have to be reminded of the circumstances that our God has secured for us. That's what happens in verses 4 and 5 for Abram. So third, the nurture of Abram's faith through reassurance. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Your very own son is incredibly emphatic in the original language. Like, 
No, not these other things that it might be. No, not this kind of abstract. No, your very own son, 75 to 86-year-old Abram, he will be the one. Our God throughout the scriptures stirs up his people by way of reminder and reassurance of his promises. And this is, in a sense, kind of a prototype example for us. The reminder of God's promises are well-timed to meet the need of Abram's heart. What happens in regards to his faith? Does God berate him? Does God marginalize him? No. God has made his promise already, and so his disposition towards Abram is reassurance. It's reassurance, not rebuke. Bolstering instead of berating, encouraging, not eviscerating. Now, it's true that throughout the scriptures, God does rebuke at times for lack of faith, but always with this in mind, come back, come back, come back and be assured of my many and great promises. So just a few things here in these verses. Your own son shall be your heir. It's not the son of another or somebody in the household who's going to be like brought in as an adopt, adoptee and kind of take over for a, a sonless man. That was very normal in the ancient Near East that if somebody passed away without a male heir, they would be like, who's in my household? Okay, it can be you. you know, perhaps a, uh, a, the oldest servant. Now, biologically, you've heard me allude to it. I mean, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that a man in his 70s or 80s and a woman in her 60s or 70s, Sarah's 10 years younger than Abram, could conceive. It's almost like, I mean, just think about this. It's another, like, as many as 25 years or at least 14 years until she does conceive. It's almost like God wants to wait until there's, like, really no possibility for conception. Nothing. Why that? Why do it that way, God? Because God is in the business, as we've seen in Genesis already, of speaking into reality things that don't exist. And I think, in a small way, numbering the stars kind of points towards this. It takes him outside. It's obviously, it's a nighttime scene. Somewhere in Canaan, he would have been able to see tons of stars. So he takes him outside. If you remember... Abram was told to number the dust in Genesis 13. Now he says, number the stars. Why take this rhetorical request? Well, the previous time that the word stars shows up in Genesis 1, God is speaking it into existence. And the previous time the dust shows up in Genesis 2, it's like clear that God has spoken into existence. This is the God who speaks and stars come into being. He speaks and the earth comes into being. And he's going to speak and Isaac is going to come into being. This is our God. He speaks things into existence out of nothing. Abram is worshiping other gods at Haran. The end of Joshua tells us he's a pagan idol worshiper. And God shows up and faith begins. Abram and Sarah are so old that it's impossible to conceive. Our God speaks and she does. If we can't number the stars, God has numbered them. Yes, he's named them. Yes, he spoke them into existence. Do you trust the God who has Genesis 1 on his resume and Genesis 15? 
We're building his resume as we go. Don't think this is somehow different. This is not like back then, prototype saint, super incredible superhero, faith, Abram. And now it's different for us. The pattern of doubt, reassurance, doubt, reassurance is something we find everywhere in the scriptures. The promises of God are true on sleepless nights in the midst of suffering. They're true at your workplace. They're true at your school. True in your family. It's true when your solutions succeed. True when your solutions fail. It's true. Maybe you're, maybe you're in the spot just like Abram and Sarah this morning. And very, very particularly, like, you would love to have a child. And for whatever reason, you can't. God's promises are true for you. They're true in the midst of doubt, discouragement, even death. Now, the danger is, of course, that what happens in our own doubtful hearts kind of metastasizes and moves in the direction of unbelief, and we start to look for other things to trust in. Or, this is sometimes the case in, um, in Christian circles, especially in America, we, we get to kind of a name-it, claim-it kind of thing. Have you heard that before? Like, all right, I'm going to start speaking something into existence, start asking for it so boldly that it almost becomes for you like in the place of Scripture to some degree. Like God is certainly going to do this thing. It is good to ask boldly to our God for things with open hands, saying, God, do what you've promised. So especially as we ask him, we do seek, we do want him to answer our prayers and in accordance with his will. So God's way of bolstering our faith is to hold out the promises of God today in Jesus Christ. Prove that they're true today by working them out in our lives through the power of his spirit and strengthen our hope that they'll be true, yes, tomorrow too. So in verse 6, is this going to reassure Abram? Is he going to be compelled by this? And how does it change his relationship with God? So last we see there the nature of faith and expected rewards. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram's faith is foregrounded here. If you look at it, if you're reading it in the Hebrew, his faith is foregrounded. He believed what God was saying despite his doubts. And indeed, his doubts provide a platform on which for his faith to grow. And this is not a set it and forget it kind of thing. Two chapters later, Abram's like, God, what about the promises? And God's back reassuring him. And then later in Abram's life, this is the normal pattern. God again reassures, and again we take heart. Now, one other thing, and I'll let Dave develop this a bit next week. Note too, the sacrifice of covenant comes later in the chapter, and it's still two chapters away that circumcision comes into the picture. Okay. Abram hasn't done anything to formally, like, enter into a relationship with God. He's just trusted the promise. It's so easy to get those things out of alignment. Oh, I'll, I'll make a commitment. Oh, I'll, oh, I'll, you know, I'll clean my life up, and then I'll come to God. It's not the way it works. We trust in his great promises, and he starts to work in us. God is the one who speaks and created the faith in the relationship with Abram. And so too with us. Now we have to say, Abram didn't believe or didn't see 
everything that was promised. Much of what was granted to him was not going to be seen in his lifetime. The place God promised, I mean, Abram dies, and he is still a sojourner in Canaan. He owns a grave plot for his wife. It's all that he owns. Abram got to see some of his grandkids, perhaps, depending on how you line things up. God's presence that was with Abram in some sense is not with him like it was with Adam and Eve. Now, there's a sense in which Abram already had foretastes of these promised rewards, but in a greater sense, for him, those rewards were not realized, and yet he still believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. What is righteousness? The word is used all over the New Testament. Sometimes it's used adjectively, like a, a person of character, a righteous person. Sometimes it's used in, kind of in the place of a word that we'd use like justice, like right kind of ordering in society. And sometimes it's used for what appears to be right standing with God, in a right relationship with God. This means that when Abram believed and God counted it to him as righteousness, he was in a right relationship with God Not because of anything that he did, working his hands, making a sacrifice, doing what was necessary there, but simply because he believed. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4. For those that would say, you got to work, you got to have the right balances, you got to have more good than evil, this is what Paul says. Uh, If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read. big portion of this text, because he's talking directly about this verse. Again, Paul saying against those that say you have to work for it, he's saying take trust in God. So this is Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you hear that? Do you hear the the comparison? Your sin doesn't get counted against you. It's covered. Righteousness is counted for you on the basis of faith. So whether it's Abram or David, Paul is trying to make sure, like really clear, it's the same throughout the scriptures. How does one stand right before God? By faith. And not by works. Indeed, in Romans 4, Paul goes on. This is verse 9 through 12. Is this blessing only then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is this only just for Abram's physical descendants who are part of the covenant? Or is it also for those outside that covenant? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised, formally entered into a covenant with God? It was not after 
But before he was circumcised, having received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Circumcision is the formal way that Abram was to ratify the covenant and say this is what it means to be in God's people. But before that, he was counted as God's people. And Paul asserts that everybody who has the same faith as him, also God's people. Also. It's by faith and not by works. In other words, Bethlehem, this kind of faith is for you too because you too are an offspring of Abram by faith. From Abram to David to Paul to you, faith alone, the gift of God, gives us a right standing with him and puts us in this line of promise with Abram, the father of faith, who didn't work for his righteousness, but was granted to him by faith. You should see in your family lineage this man, Abram. Not a different kind of believer the same. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I think this is just a great verse that encapsulates the relationship of faith with our lives. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It wasn't and isn't Come to God after your good. The good, the transformation, comes after we come to him by faith. It was not Abram's own doing that gave him a right standing with God. It cannot be ours. Others before him, remember in the garden, the temptation. Did God really say? Are his promises actually like to be believed? Abram said, yes, they are. And he clung to God and to his word. There were no good deeds of Abram that made him earn a place with God. He simply had to trust in what God was promising. And so it is too today. If you're here today, you've been coming to Bethlehem for a long time. It's your first time you've ever been here. It is by faith in the promises of God as expressed in Jesus Christ's story that we are saved. He who knew no sin, never sinned once. He died. He was killed. Killed in our place as a sacrifice. And he did not stay dead, but he got up. He got up never to die again. And right now, he's reigning at his father's right hand so that if you will put your faith in him, your trust, you don't have to be good enough because you can't be. He was, and he will give you his righteousness, his right standing with God. You will become his son. You will become his daughter. And it will never change because his promises never change. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer, you're already right now trusting in that. How do we rest in these promises? I would say we take our eyes off ourselves. We take our eyes off our circumstances that shift and place our eyes of faith on God and his never-changing promises that secure our eternal circumstances. 
His great promises don't make us go, oh, I'm done, just waiting for whatever happens sometime in the future. It provides hope and energy for today. This is Paul in Romans 8, Paul in Ephesians 1. Jesus Christ's resurrection power is at work in you right now if you have faith in Jesus. And you, church, are the first taste, according to Paul in Colossians, of a new creation. A new creation. In this exchange, John Bunyan, the, uh, the English Baptist, said it this way. When saints look upon the promise or the word of encouragement by faith, then it is that they come. But when they look upon themselves or the difficulties, they're looking at the difficulties that lie before them, doubt, then they doubt. So look not only to what your eyes can see, but look to Christ and come to him, sinner, saint, sufferer. Consider what Peter tells us about what we can't see yet in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. I'll just read this. He says this about the reward, the promise, the inheritance. He says, blessed be, God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Do you hear that? By God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, even though for now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, in conclusion, last couple of minutes here. From Abram to David to Paul to now, the answer to um, the friends that I got on the bus ride is the same. What pleases God? Faith. Faith pleases God. No amount of doing good earns a place before him. Finding all our hope in God's promises is what he desires because that brings him the most glory and what leads to a life of obedience. So as we finish today, this is Hebrews chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. This is the author of Hebrews' summary statement about Abram and Sarah. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, was born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God's not ashamed to be the God of those. Even if their faith is weak, they take faith. So there's nothing this morning that faith in God cannot overcome. The faith that embraces his promises Because you know that at the end of that, just the reality is, there is nothing that can happen to us in this life that a good resurrection can't fix. There's nothing that will happen to those that have put their stake in Christ that he will not pay back a thousand, a million, a billion fold in the day to come. When you cross the border into the homeland that is yours for forever, there will not even be the temptation to say, it wasn't worth it. It will be worth it. Let's pray. So God, help us as a people to not become hardened against the promises of God. And for those that have entered in this morning and their hearts maybe are totally hardened or somewhat hardened, God, open up hearts Help us to be reassured we are not home yet. Help us to take heart. Help us to hope in God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.